Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, it's great to see you guys this morning. Excited to kick off this new series with you guys. And every year at Life Church, we usually do at least one series on dating, love, marriage, or sex. And because frankly, the, these issues tend to bring about more pain and brokenness in people's lives than, than maybe anything else. And, and so if we start having like years at Life Church where no marriages get in trouble, and years at Life Church where, where there's nobody that's experiencing pain and brokenness because of things in romantic relationships, then we'll break this pattern. But so far, every year, there's, there's plenty of people wrestling with these things. And so I'm excited to kick off this series in Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is one of the most mysterious and misunderstood books. It's one of the most ignored books because people aren't quite sure, what is this saying? And is it okay that I'm reading this? Is this somehow inappropriate? If, if I read it online, is it gonna flag my browsing history? And so some people throughout history have sought to, to discredit it and say, or just ignore it, yet others throughout history have really celebrated it. There was a Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, one of Judaism's greatest scholars near the time of Christ, wrote that, that, that if the other books of the Bible are holy, the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. He also stated that the world attained its supreme value only on the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel. But there's all kinds of questions that come from this book, sometimes called Song of Songs, sometimes called Song of Solomon. And the first question comes with, what is a guy with 700 wives doing writing a book about romance and marriage? And, and that's a fair question. It's, uh, now, some believe this book was written uh, not by Solomon, but about Solomon. Or some believe it was a book written to Solomon by someone close to him in his court. Some have seen it as a critique of his sinful decisions in the area of marriage and writing about this is how it could have, should have been for Solomon. Others believe that, that, that Solomon wrote this as a young man. That, that he wrote Song of Songs as a young man and Proverbs as a middle-aged man and Ecclesiastes as a grumpy old man. If this is true and it's possible, then Song of Songs is historical poetry about Solomon's first and truest and greatest love. And, uh, um, but but he, I think it's more than likely that Solomon uh, wrote this book later in his life as the ideal as an ideal poetic picture of what God intended marriage to be. It could even in some ways be seen as a, as a song of confession and repentance of his own sins of adultery and polygamy. If this is true, then, then there's this sense in which Solomon as an older man, looking back at what he wishes things would have been, almost through the lens of Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, and this beautiful love, picture of love and harmony and joy that Adam and Eve experienced before sin entered into the world. And, and I, I tend to think this is probably the case. 
that Solomon, late in his life, looks back on all the things that he wishes would have been different, almost like this song of confession and repentance, this picture, this ideal picture of what marriage could and should be. Now, there's a lot of ways to interpret this book. Some in Judaism have looked at this as an allegory of God and the Jews, and not really speaking about a marriage relationship at all. Um, uh, that, that, that view it kind of transitioned in, into some uh, eras of Christianity and seeing it as primarily an allegory of Christ and the church. And this was a popular view in the past, in large part because of the Roman Catholic Church's overall discomfort with sexuality, a, a view that was influenced by, by Greek philosophy, which saw just innate this dualism between the physical and the spiritual world. And so there in Greek philosophy, there was this idea that, that the New Testament totally goes against. But this idea that the, that the physical is by, by very nature wrong and evil, and that the spiritual is by nature good. And so that's why some people influenced by Greek philosophy didn't struggle with Jesus's divinity they struggled with the idea that he was actually a flesh and, and, and a physical person because of this whole propensity to look at, at the physical as evil. And so the Catholic Church, uh, historically, because of that influence, has, has had a negative view of sexuality in general. In fact, I was reading this week that the Catholic Church, from the third century to the 10th century, put out a calendar of the approved days when a husband and wife could be together sexually. 40 days before Christmas was out. Just, what kind of Merry Christmas is that? The 40 days before Easter was out. And then the Friday was out because it was the day that Jesus died. Saturday was out because that was the Sabbath day and it's, apparently sex is considered work for some people. Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, so no sex on Sunday. So the weekend is gone, and by the time you added up this calendar, they basically had about 40 days of the year that it was okay. So that would make you want to start some sort of reformation. Um, it's, uh, but this is a completely unbiblical perspective. God created sex and romantic love and marriage, and Song of Solomon is this clear testament to that and helps make that clear. And uh, I, I believe the best uh, way to interpret this book is that of a, of a love song that paints a picture of a couple, snapshots of different moments or phases in their relationship and in their marriage. And that, and that it's a, a love song or a love story of a married couple. And so in that sense, it does point to the, mo to the far greater love story of God and his people. And a book that's meaningfully influenced, uh, my understanding of Song of Solomon um, is this book by a guy named Tommy Nelson called The Book of Romance, and for sure influenced my take on this and this series in some ways. And so really this first phase that we're gonna see for this couple is, is the phase of attraction. So if you have your Bible, go over to Song of Solomon chapter one. A lot of cheers for Song of Solomon this morning. And uh, 
Song of Solomon, chapter one, and this phase of attraction. Now, we're gonna do our best as we look at these different phases of this couple, from attraction to, to, to dating, to uh, early marriage and honeymoon, to later in their marriage, and, 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 and later as a maturing married couple. We're gonna do our best each week to have truths that, that both apply to singles and truths that also apply to married people. And, and some weeks it'll be a little more heavily uh, um, weighted towards married people, some weeks a little more heavily weighted towards single people. Today's message uh, is gonna apply to both, but definitely is leaning towards singles. So message one, this idea of attraction. The psychology dictionary defines attraction as the natural feeling of being drawn to other individuals and desiring their company. It's a little bit of a vague uh, definition, but that's kind of the, the nature of attraction is it's a little bit vague, a little bit hard to define. And, and, and really, as we talk about this today, for, for those of you that are single, I, I'm hoping that today will be a time when you consider traits that, that, that you might be looking for in a potential mate. And, and for married couples, I, I, I want this to be a time where maybe you remember those things that attracted to you to your spouse uh, in the beginning. And really all of us uh, looking at ourselves in light of these things, of, of, of the traits that we want to be dominant in our own lives. Song of Solomon chapter one and verse one. It says, Solomon's, Song of Songs. What, what that first three words is really saying is, as Solomon is believed to have written about uh, over a thousand songs. And, and the, uh, this idea is that this is the greatest of all of his songs. It's, it's, uh, some see it as being, making this declaration, this is the greatest song that's ever been written. And then it just goes for it right at the beginning. Now we're gonna see these different characters in Song of Solomon, there's, there's this, this Shulamite young maiden and, and, and this young lady, this, and then there is this shepherd and there's this king. Now, we, we, some people see those as, as two different men who were pursuing this young lady. I, I'm going with the interpretation that they are both referring to Solomon, different aspects of his personality and, his, and, and who he is, but it, they're both speaking of Solomon. And then sometimes you hear from their friends will chime in sometimes. And, and so Solomon's Song of Songs. Now we're hearing from the lady, and in this book, uh, the lady speaks twice as much as the man. I'm not saying it's that way in every marriage, but maybe it is. And so, uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Here's our first thing we're seeing here in this attraction phase. Physical attractiveness matters. God made us this way. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to a person. If, if men were never attracted to women and if women were never attracted to men, then the human race would have gone extinct forever ago. It's this attraction thing. God made us this way. And, and we see this through the scripture from, from Adam's love at first sight of Eve in Genesis 2 to Jacob's immediate attraction to Rachel in Genesis 29, where in verse 17 it says, she was beautiful in form and appearance 
We never see the scriptures as opposed to physical attraction. Now, certainly marriage is more than physical attraction, but it's not less than that. We see in Solomon's work of Proverbs chapter five, verse 18, Solomon writes this, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. What we're seeing here is that physical attraction in marriage is not something that we're supposed to outgrow. It's something we still pursue. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. I don't know if in your marriage you primarily use like animal references of what Solomon liked to. We're gonna see a lot of this in Song of Solomon. You look a lot like this animal I saw at the zoo the other day. <laughs> May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And, and so we see this encouragement towards physical attraction, both early in a relationship, but something that, that, that should continue through the course of a marriage. But here's the truth. Physical attraction alone is not enough. We see here, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse three. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. So what we see, this lady starts off the beginning, say, I just wanna kiss, I really wanna kiss you. Your kisses are better than wine, and you smell so very good. And, and that's, I mean, and in the ancient world, that was even a bigger statement. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, but now we're shifting here to something even a little deeper, a little more meaningful. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. And so this idea of, of a name is, is speaking of character and reputation. And so it goes beyond, he's saying, I wanna kiss you, you smell so good, but, but even more than that, your, your name, your character, your reputation, I'm, I'm drawn to that as well. See, physical attraction is not enough. It's, now here's the thing, it's enough to get started, but it's not, gonna, it's not, gonna, not, not enough for a love that's gonna last a lifetime. Physical attraction alone is not enough. Physical attractiveness is subjective in the eye of the beholder, and it's fascinating as you look at changing standards of beauty around the world and throughout history, what was seen as attractive in one place at one time was not seen attractive as a, at another place at uh, another time. And in and, and the, and the Renaissance, if, if you were a very curvy woman who would be seen in our culture as pleasantly plump, in, in, in the Renaissance, you were a supermodel. Some of you are like, I was just born in the wrong time. It's, uh, Marilyn Monroe, if she was alive today, would be a plus size model. She was size 12. And it's, but back in that time, that, that their women in the 50s were actually many times trying to gain weight to be seen as more attractive. And, and so the thing is, physical attractiveness is subjective. Here's the thing, physical attractiveness can be deceptive. Proverbs 31.30 says, charm is deceitful. It can, this physical attractiveness can mask character flaws. Physical attractiveness will be evaporative. Charm is deceitful, Solomon says, Proverbs 31, 30, and beauty is fleeting. Here's the truth. 
pretty much nobody looks better at 75 than they did at 25. I mean, that's just, no matter how much filler you got, no matter how much, 75 never beats 25 usually. Maybe there's exceptions. Maybe some of you are the exception, I don't know. Laugh with me, folks, it'll be more fun. And so uh, it's, but sharp beauty is fleeting. Physical attractiveness will be evaporative. The principle is that the inside matters more. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse three. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment or primarily from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. This is not, he's not saying there's anything wrong with doing your hair or, or wearing some jewelry. He's just saying if that becomes the focus of your life, if that's where you find your value and you believe that's what makes you really beautiful, you're missing out. He says, rather, your real beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth. This unfading beauty is something that doesn't go away. It's something that lasts, something that gets better with time. And so the Bible is for physical attractiveness, being a part of a romantic relationship, but, but it can never just be that. It can never stop there. There's always got to be more. Here's the third truth. Before attraction takes over, Decide in advance what your non-negotiables are. For those of you here, here today and, and single, not in a relationship right now, I, wanna, I want you to think deeply about this. Before attraction takes over, decide in advance what your non-negotiables are. There is a time when attraction takes over your ability to think clearly and your judgment becomes cloudy. And so you gotta decide what your non-negotiables are before attraction kicks in like that. And if you're single, consider what you're looking for in a potential mate. What are your non-negotiables? Have that figured out in advance? Because here's the thing. Significant attraction slash infatuation slash lust, it should be a listed on the lists of mental illnesses. It makes people crazy. And your ability to think clearly, like, is this wise? Well, she sure is pretty, it must be wise. It makes people stupid. And so before you're in that spot, decide in advance what your non-negotiables are. And these aren't primarily like height, weight, hair color, measurements, net worth, this isn't primarily those things. It could be a couple of those things, but it's not primarily those things. So what do we see? Look for somebody with a good reputation. See, that's what she's saying here. She says, your name is like a perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Many scholars take this as, as when she has shared this with all of her friends, all of them have said, he's the best. You're not gonna find a better man than that. Here, here's a good rule of thumb. If when you share about your relationship with people that love you and are rooting for you, if they make an awkward face like, oh, that do I tell them what I know about that person or what I've heard about that person? 
Or if they go ahead and say, hey, hey, I see that you're excited about this, but I'm not sure this is gonna be great for you. If people that legit love you and there's more than just a couple of them saying it, you, you, wanna, you wanna say, let me think about that. Maybe they see some things I don't see, but, but what she says is, is, is your name and your reputation are such that, that you're, you're known as a quality person. And when I told my friends, they thought you can't do any better than this. He's amazing. Look for somebody with a good reputation. Look for somebody who has humility and self-awareness. Let me show this to you, verse five. She says, dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar. The tents of Kedar, this Bedouin tribe, were made of black wool. And, and like, the, like the tent curtains of Solomon, the, 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 the tent curtains of Solomon's palace were of this really, really dark purple. And, and in this time, you know, people didn't go to tanning beds to look darker. They didn't have the spray on tan. In this time, in this culture, lighter skin was the standard of beauty. And, and then the idea was that if you had lighter skin, it went you were probably from a higher um, socioeconomic status family and you weren't having to labor outside for hours and hours on end. And so lighter skin was the standard of beauty. And so, so what we see here is, is this kind of self-awareness. She says, hey, I am lovely. So it's not like she has this deep self-esteem issue. She says, I am lovely, but I, but I also have the self-awareness and humility I wanna let you know, but I, I do have this thing. I am darker than I wish I was. I've, I've, I've been outside a lot, working hard. There is this thing of humility and self-awareness that are two of the biggest building blocks of a healthy relationship. And, and, and see, the thing is this. See, pride acts as though there's no imperfections. And so with this person, they'll never apologize. A prideful person, it's never their fault. They always somehow turn it on you. And there's, there's no imperfections. They're never gonna own it when they mess up. They're never gonna be the first to apologize. Prideful, and a prideful person is incredibly hard to have an intimate, lasting relationship with. That is a red flag. But a deeply insecure person who, who, who doesn't go through a process of, of healing and growth focuses only on their imperfections. And this person will, if they, if they don't grow past some of this and get some healing, this person will constantly need validation. And that, that can be exhausting. But, but humility and self-awareness understands that God has made me in his image. I am immensely valuable and I have good strengths as well as some sins, as well as some imperfections. There's this self-awareness. I'm dark, but I'm lovely. There's this self-awareness. And, 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 and the, the great thing, the tough thing about a relationship with someone who lacks self-awareness is somebody who really, really lacks self-awareness, it lacks enough self-awareness to know they lack self-awareness. Almost impossible to address. And, and, and so she's got this humility and this self-awareness. Think of what some non-negotiables might be for you. Look for someone who will talk honestly about, some, about their prior hurts. Look here, verse six. My mother's sons 
were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. What she's saying here is, hey, the family I grew up in, it wasn't perfect, like all of ours. And, and, and the family I grew up in wasn't perfect. You almost get this picture that, that, that something went on where, where maybe her dad wasn't around much, or, was, or, or but this idea that, man, her brothers were kind of put placed in charge, and they made her work, out, work outside all the time. That's why she got so sunburned. That's why she's darker than she wishes she was. But it says they were angry with me. I, there were some things that I went through. Look for someone who will protect your integrity. Look here, verse seven. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Here's what she's saying. Hey, I like you and everything, and I want us to hang out. Where, where exactly are you gonna be? Because here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not just gonna walk around from, from, from group of shepherds and sheep and group of shepherds and sheep with a veil over my face. What she's saying is, I'm not willing to look like a prostitute for you. Because that was the picture of what prostitutes would do is, is they would just kind of follow along. Oh, there's a bunch of guys over there. Let's, let's go see if maybe they would have some interest. And, and then, that, that, oh, you're not interested? Then go to the next one, go to the next one. She said, I, I'm, I'm not gonna chase you around like some kind of prostitute. That's not who I am. So, so tell me exactly where you're gonna be. Because I'm happy to come hang out and maybe we can have a picnic, but I'm not just gonna just be chasing after you and looking all desperate or looking like I'm a prostitute. And so the principle is if someone's trying to coerce you to compromise your integrity in order to be with them, it's a giant red flag. Someone says, well, hey, if you really love me, you would do this. So, so before attraction has really kicked in, before infatuation and lust have kicked in, you want to have a list of clear non-negotiables. These are the types of things I'm looking for in a potential mate. And I, I really believe the biggest non-negotiable is that the most important thing to you should be the most important thing to them. And so whatever's the most important thing in your life, Whatever you want your life to be centered on, you wanna find somebody like that. And so if, if your most important thing in your life is, is, a, is to have a relationship and to follow Jesus, if that's the most important thing in your life, then a non-negotiable should be that that's the sort of person you're looking for. Here's the third thing, fourth thing, and this is uh, more for marrieds. Before attraction fades, Decide to intentionally cultivate and give opportunity for it. It's a word for the married couples. And we'll address some more of this as we look at other phases of this relationship with, with these two folks in Song of Solomon. But, but I, as we think about attraction, I just want you to take a minute. Has anybody here been married over 40 years? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Over 40, all right, let's, let's give it up for them. That's incredible. Anybody over 50 years? Anybody over 50? That's incredible. Anybody over 55 years? That's incredible. Remind me how long you guys have. 60 years. 60 years. 
married when they were eight years old. And so, uh, um, but for all of us that have been married a while, remember when you were first dating? You tried. Like you tried. You tried to look nice. You tried to be nice. You did fun things. You went fun places. You brought your A game. You showered. <laughs> you walked to another room when you were gassy. <laughs> oh, I've got to go check something over there. <laughs> and here's the thing. All of the routine and responsibilities of life war against maintaining attraction and excitement and romance in your marriage. And the only way you're even going to maintain some of that, the only way you're gonna even maintain moments and seasons of that is if you intentionally cultivate that and fight for it and work for it and budget time and money and energy for it. And so it's gotta be a choice that, 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 that we're going to work at this and create opportunities for this. And here's the thing, Valentine's Day is like, like nine days away. If you can't bring your A game for nine days in February, then you're not trying hard enough. Like how can you, what can you do what can you do in your marriage to cultivate some romance and attraction and excitement even over the next couple of weeks? What is something you can do? Is it scheduling a babysitter so you guys can get away overnight? Is it, is it planning a nice dinner? Is it, is it writing a really sweet note? Maybe, maybe you should make it your goal to outsong a Solomon Solomon. Write your own little steamy song about you and your spouse and, and then sing it for us next Sunday. And so, uh, like, go for it. At least, maybe these guys, 60 years, gonna get up and do a little rap for us next week. I hope this series can help some of you rekindle the fire. Too many couples end up like one older couple that I heard about. The doctor gave an older couple a terrible report concerning the health of the husband. The doctor requested to speak privately to the wife, and when the door was shut, he said, I've got some bad news. I think your husband is probably going to die within a week. He doesn't have long to live. But the good news is this. If you cook him three meals a day, if you bring him breakfast in bed, if you pamper him, if you make love to him as much as you did the first year of your marriage, I think he might live for a year or two. The wife went out to the waiting room and her husband said, what did the doctor say? And she looked at him and said, he said that you're going to die. Um, <laughs> it's... Too many couples end up like that one. Here's the last thing and we're done. Our longing for romantic love is a gift and a shadow of a much greater love. You see, for some of you, romantic relationships or marriage have been a source of pain, 
or disappointment or maybe simply a mixed bag. And a whole lot of this is because we live in a broken world with broken people who, who hurt each other. But even the greatest marriage will have disappointments and leave us with longings unable to be completely fulfilled because they are longings that another human cannot fulfill completely. You see, love and marriage, even when, when love and marriage are thriving, it's an amazingly beautiful gift. But even at its very best is a picture or a shadow of an even greater gift and an even greater relationship. Here's how the Apostle Paul talked about it. He was talking about marriage, Ephesians 5. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, the thing is, no matter whether you find yourself single or find yourself married, no matter if, if love and romance and marriage has been a, the incredibly painful in your life or an incredible source of joy in your life, Jesus is the lover who knows everything about you, the good and the bad and the ugly. And he loves you supremely. And he knows every mistake you've ever made romantically and in every other area. And he loves you just the same. And he is the one who will keep every promise. And he is the one who will never hurt you or walk out on you. And he will love you for all of this life and the next, forever and ever and ever. And so because of this, wherever we find ourselves, we have this tremendous hope, embracing that romance and sex and marriage are this incredible gift from God. And, and, and that, that we can be grateful for this and, and seek to have as thriving and as beautiful of these of, of relationship as possible, but, but all of us have this awareness that at its very best, it's this gift, but it's this picture and a shadow of something far, far, far greater. Let's pray. I imagine some of you are single, and, and I'd encourage you to commit this week to get alone with the Lord and ask him to help you to write a list of non-negotiables, of the kind of mate, the kind of person that you would be asking God to bring you, that you'd be looking for, recognizing no one's perfect and we're all sinful, but, but that you are too precious and too valuable to settle for less than what God might have for you. And some of, some of you may find yourself married, and maybe you've been married five years or 25 or 50 years, and if you're honest, you've not done as much effort and time and energy recently trying to fuel the attraction and the romance and the excitement. And I'd encourage you this week 
to as we approach even Valentine's Day, to make that a priority, to take a step, a tangible action or series of actions to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to create more space for this, more priority for this, more time for this. So Father, we thank you for love, we thank you for marriage, we thank you for all of those things. And ultimately, we thank you for the picture that a really good marriage can paint of your incredible love for us in Christ, giving himself for us. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.